0: We read this evening from Psalm 65, the subheading of which reads to the chief musician, a psalm of David, a song. Hear now the word of God. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me as for our transgressions. You will provide atonement for them. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. By awesome deeds in righteousness you will answer us, O God of our salvation. You who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They also who dwell in the furthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly, you settle its furrows, you make it soft with showers, you bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness, and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks, the valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy, they also sing. Thus far we read, Psalm 65, and to the first four verses I would draw your attention. In the preaching tonight, praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come, iniquities prevail against me, as for our transgressions you will provide atonement for them. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts, We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. The setting of this psalm is unknown, but the subject is well known. The praise of the great God of Zion, which is the church, and known in the church as the Savior God. This God is revealed in all the world as the God above, who is to be feared and thanked. And the creation itself joins in the praise of God for his goodness to them. The church has seen fitting to include this song of praise to God in all of the worship of God in every occasion, in what we would call good or what we would call bad, and all the times in between. This is a fitting psalm, being the word of God, to sing at every occasion and to use in the worship. Tonight, we praise God in our worship at the occasion of the profession of faith of a young lady, a woman of God, and of the transfer of membership of a godly man, who both pledge by their professions to be those who perform, who act upon their vows to God and for the service of his church. This is the significance of this occasion, and may it stir us as well to continue on in the praise of God in Zion. Praise Always awaits God in Zion, and now praise awaits God in sovereign grace, Zion. Praise waits there and here. So, beloved, what are we waiting for? To the great God and for his good house, the praise is rendered here. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, the psalmist says and goes on to be speaking of the man whose blessedness it is that he may dwell in the courts of God, and which he enjoys with all the people of God as the blessing of satisfaction with the goodness of the house of God. So the God and the God of the house of God are celebrated here. Praise waits to God for the goodness of God and the greatness of God and the goodness of his house. In Zion. Well, let's think about this. As we read this morning, let's chew on the manna. Let's digest it and take it in. This God, the name God here is plural, really, for gods. Sometimes God is uh, written in the Hebrew as El. Some of the ends of your names, like Nathaniel, uh, are remnants of the Hebrew God. Gift of God means Nathaniel, El means God. Plural, Elohim, is gods. And so you wonder, why is God called gods here? Well, beloved, it's not to say at all that there are other gods besides God. It is simply to say that God is the God of all gods. Everything you might imagine about a god and godness is summarized quintessentially, and in every way in the one God of Zion. He is God, the only God besides whom there are no other. He's the infinite God, is God. This is why there's praise. He's eternal. He knows no beginning or ending. He's all those virtues that we learn in catechism, but we think upon and marvel upon in our daily living. He's unchangeable. He's love. He's wise. He's holy in every way. He's Transcendent, God means he's above what he's created. God is the creator God who does not depend on creation for anything in it, from whom nothing can take away from God and nothing in creation can add to God. In virtues and in works, he is praiseworthy. Now, this God, for whom praise is awaiting in Zion, is known in Zion not only as God, and Jehovah God, the God of Israel, the unchangeable covenanting God, but as the God who dwells with sinners. He's the God above who is now miraculously with us and dwelling with us to bless us. He forgives their sins. He atones for them. He gives access into his house and fellowship. He is truly the God of what we call covenant, the God of the covenant I will be your God, you will be my people. Recall the promise to Abraham, the father of the covenant people. This God is our God as well. So known to them is this God in what I would call his house revelation. That's Zion, called the dwelling place of God, where people are and they work for God and they commune with God. In fact, Zion is the name of the mountain of Jerusalem where David moved the tabernacle and where the people worshipped God, who appeared there over the mercy seat in the holy place. And you read of that in Psalm 76. There is this description of the place of God. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem, short for Jerusalem, also is his tabernacle. And his dwelling place in Zion. So, over and over, the Bible mentions this house of God where God makes himself known, where there's this holy city, Jerusalem, Moriah, Zion, whatever it is. It's a reference to the fact that God is the God of the place, a place of revelation and communion and blessing, love and life. Now, God has revealed himself to Israel in this place. It's a special place, is this Zion. And God made this house, in fact, a more permanent and glorious place by dwelling and, and uh, moving the, the place to the temple. The tabernacle that David set up would be moved and would become the temple, the more permanent dwelling place on Mount Moriah, one of the other hills of Zion. But now God is on the move. And he's advancing in Revelation, also with his house Revelation. And we know him now in these latter days. This church, where you confess your faith, Rachel, and where you're joining, Nathan, uh, God is known as the one who's known to us by his son. His son, Jesus, the only begotten son of God, is in a very special way the real house of God. Remember this morning we said the manna, the true bread from heaven, is Jesus. Well, Jesus is the true tabernacle or temple of God. John tells us that we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, when Jesus manifested himself tabernacling among us, dwelling among us, a reference to the same language of the God of Zion, in Jerusalem, now God with us. This is the amazing thing. The great God, the Elohim, the Jehovah, is this God of this house now, so wanting to be close to us in himself and in his love that he sends his son, Jesus. He does the impossible, the eternal and natural son of God, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, takes on human flesh and becomes a man. And in this perfect man is dwelling the dwelling place of God so that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. And to see Jesus and to know him is to look, as it were, in the face of God and to know and approach unto God. Now, in heaven, this goodness goes on, the goodness of this house where God dwells, there will be the tabernacle and temple of God with men gloriously, sinlessly, who sing the new song of redemption. Revelation 14, for example, we read, of Zion singing the new song, John seeing this, then I looked and behold a Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. These are those who sing the new song before the throne and so on. So Zion exists there. But also, even before heaven, beloved, we are now the Zion of God, the churches. And this is how we need to see this if we're going to know that this is a fitting psalm for our singing at the occasion of confession of faith and all of the occasions where it's so necessary and vital to praise God. Hebrews 12, for example, teaches us this of the believers, the apostle writes, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, that temple, that Zion, the mediator of the new covenant, and of the blood to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That's Hebrews. Paul writes in Timothy, 1 Timothy 3 and 15, that he ought to know how to conduct himself because he is conducting himself as a young minister in the church which is called the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So the church is this Mount Zion. And God's greatness is celebrated here in the church house of God every Lord's day and in the very fact of our existence and seeking to be his people. Actually, the goodness of the house of God, where God dwells, is the focus of this psalm. as a greatness of God celebrated in Zion, the church of Jesus Christ, by a people who's blessed and satisfied, happy with the goodness of God's house. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. To you, the vow shall be performed. The psalmist begins and goes down to verse 4 to say, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. So this house is good. Rachel, this house is good. As are other true churches of Christ. They're good houses too, because that's where God dwells and we get to get to dwell with him there. It's the the goodest place of all the earth, we could say, even as God is the greatest God of any God that can be imagined. Where he dwells is indeed a great and good place to be sure. For here, after all, God is. Let us not deny that. Devils may seek to Throng the place, and they may be hanging among the cobwebs. Who knows? In the corners of the church. But God certainly is here and here to bless us as we bring His good word. There's a goodness of a house of God and of a true church of God because there's a good word of God here. This word, the inspired, infallible word of God. There's the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's the good ordinances of preaching and sacraments that are here and they're to guard us and to introduce us into the covenant and further us in the covenant as we partake of them. There's the good faith gleaned from the Bible called the faith of our fathers living still. This is expressed in the creeds of the church of Christ. Amazing gift. This is why it's good. The church of today is linked with the church of yesterday and of every land because of this good grace of God working in us to lead us to the truth and to himself. There's the almighty power of God exercised in the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There's officers ordained to rule, to preach, and to show Christ's holy mercies. And there's no other place in the world like this, even though there's different local churches, of course, in all the world, but no other place besides those churches, and besides that people, and besides those ordinances, and besides this word that is good, truly. And that exalts and extols and leads people into the fellowship of his house. There may be big houses that draw the rabble and the raucous crowds and maybe even some of us to root on their teams. But here we get to praise God in this good house. Amazing. It's not even like our homes, you know, that we celebrate every day in mothers today. Those are good places to be sure, covenant homes. But homes are only components of the house, the place where God dwells. After all, your home is not the bride of Christ, nor is mine. My home is not the body of Christ, nor is yours, or yours are yours. But together we are. Together we are. And that's what's so delightful when people come and visit And it's like cross-pollinating, I suppose, but you're showing church that's beyond your walls. But here, the church and the church altogether is this place where God dwells as the bride and body of Christ that he honors and loves. In fact, the goodness of the house of God is so good that others from all the world are drawn to it. In four places in Psalm 65, the universality of the church of all the world is noted. Verse two, O oh, you who hear prayer to you, all flesh will come, verse five, O oh God of our salvation, you are the confidence of all the ends of the earth. Verse seven, you are the God uh, verse seven you you still the noise of the seas and the noise of the waves and the tumult of the peoples, but verse eight, you are the one who um, Calls the ones who dwell in the furthest parts, and they're afraid of your signs, and so on. There's a reference here to this magnification of the glory of God in all the world. But even so, this, one other thing, before I go to the second point. The goodness of the house of God is, I would commend to your attention, celebrated also when the creation itself is brought out here and God's providence of it in connection with his celebration of the house of God. Providence here is front and center from verse 6 on. The God who is the God over the seas and over the waves and over all the peoples. The God who's the God who visits the earth and waters it and enriches it. The God of rivers, the God of droughts, the God of, of Showers the God who crowns the year with His goodness, and their paths drip. His paths drip with abundance. The God of the wilderness, the God of the little hills, the pastures and and the and the valleys—they're all blessed of God in a way with His general providence, His power, His wisdom, and His goodness. So much so that that creation praises God. You see that. The, the little hills rejoice in every side, and the valleys covered with grain. They shout for joy, and they sing. And, beloved, this is one way that God is seeking to promote praise where it should be in the first place, here. It's one thing for the brute in inanimate creation. The rocks participate in this praise. It's one thing for them to praise God, and they've been sustained And somehow they're even looking and waiting for the redemption that draws nigh, Romans 8. It's one thing. It's another when people praise God, people made in His image, people in whom the love of God is and whose wills are changed to be praisers and not haters of God. And so the picture of the praiseworthy God who uh, provides providences in creation is for us, the church, to stir anew our praise. After all, if praise is in creation, if the flowers that are blossoming now and the oak seeds that are coming out and are going to drop all over the place now are a praise to the magnification of the power of God to bring life from the dead, if the birds singing in and, and all the ways that God shows he's God If they're praising God, how much more should we or should not we? And that leads to this this peculiar praise of the peculiar people of God. My second point. We are a people, God reminds us, who are not only a house, but we're individuals. Praise waits in God, in Zion. And then Zion is said to be occupied by those who perform vows, those who confess their faith, those who pray and whose prayers are heard, those who have a sense of their own sin and who know, though, the atonement of Christ. Besides, verse 4 singles out individuals. Blessed is the woman or the man that you choose and cause to approach you that he or she may dwell in your courts and then we we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house of your holy temple but you'll note here this is truly amazing and amazing how we not need not to find just a certain proof texts to prove the doctrines of grace and so on and of salvation They're all over the place in the Bible. It's the grand theme of the Bible. The God of the house is the God of mercy and grace and of Jesus Christ, and we're saved by faith in him alone. But notice this. There is a blessed people that are made, and they're made to be the house of God, who are chosen. They're blessed to be chosen. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. That just about sums up, we might say, anachronistically, the five points of Calvinism, or all of the Reformed faith. There's this praise waiting in Zion of sinners who've been, who've been saved, and they needed to be saved because all they're aware of without God and without His mercy is the sins, the iniquities that prevail against Him, and the transgressions. That's true. We are, apart from the grace of God, totally depraved and totally not wanting to praise God. A part of this other house of the fallen race called the kingdom of Babylon. That's all we are. But God has chosen a people. This is election. God chooses before the foundation of the world. He makes the distinction. He has the right to make the world the place he wants it to be. And it's a place where there will be a fall, indeed, not out of his control. There will be, however, an election of grace, according to which God will execute his plan to save out of that world his chosen ones in Jesus Christ. Blessed is the man you choose, not the man who chooses you, though that follows, but first the man who God chooses. This is The doctrine of the uh, sovereignty of God in salvation beginning before we were born, not only, but before all time. And then cause to approach you. This is amazing, too. The salvation of God begins in the eternal decree of God and before we were born and, of course, had no existence. But then there's this salvation that causes us to approach God. God. I'm reminded of the psalm, Psalm 110, that the people shall be made willing in the day of the power of God. It's not about the free will of God, you see, or of man, excuse me, but about the free will of God. God freely gives us to be his and then causes us to approach him. And here you have it every step of the way. He causes us to be born again. He causes a Rachel and a Nathan and all of us to be born again, to have another will put in besides the selfish one, a new heart, where there was a heart of stone, now a flesh, and a love for God. And then to know and experience what it is to dwell with God. This is the great truth of the fellowship of God, Christianity, that we preach here. God fellowships with those he makes to be his. And it's not just about some, as some have thought, who are chosen to the Levitical office. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. And it was the case then, children, the Levites only would have the privilege of the supremest access to God and the high priest once a year in the Holy of Holies but there were other courts of women and of Gentiles and so on anticipating the fact that all of God's people have such access. We are all made prophets and priests and kings, and by the blood of Jesus Christ, we come in to the presence of God whenever, whenever we're moved. And he's always there, and the lights are always on, even in the holy place. And come with our tears and come with our complaints and come as his people seeking to glorify him. And he says, You come to me, sit on my lap, hear my secrets, and now you tell me your story. That's our God. Not beautiful. Blessed and truly blessed. Above all the other things we could have access to some club. Access to some club in New York and Manhattan, access to the White House. You got access to God. Forgiveness of sins, too. Look at this. We're those who know that God hears prayer and that all flesh will come to him, uh, to, to God, because iniquities are taken care of. And look how personal this is. Iniquities prevail against me, but as for our transgressions, and mine too, you will provide atonement for them. Now, he's thinking in Old Testament terms according to the the law of the bulls and the goats and the blood that was shed. But this psalmist has the mind of Christ. Christ wrote the psalm, by the way, pointing to him. These are the words of the Old Testament which testify the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. There will be atonement, the sinner says. I know it, and now we say on the other side of the cross, there is atonement to which I can always go, no matter my sins. All of our sins, all of our iniquities, we go to. And so this is what's going on here in this psalm celebrating the greatness of God in the good house. It's also referring to the personal praise of the people who are in that house. It's not just about the church, and here's the church, and here's the steeple. Look inside and see all the people, as we say to our children. And there's the people, that body of Christ, that is redeemed, and will praise God with all their heart. You do that with all your mind, with all your soul. Do I do do that? Very personal here. Talked about a God and his house. Now about people, individuals, ordinary people, terrible sinners, every one of us. Raise your hand. We can. We are who need Christ, but for whom Christ is everything because he's died for them. And they understand now everything about the greatness of God, this personal redemption, this relationship with God, this satisfaction we have in the goodness of the house of God where we learn of Jesus and his love and the gospel. That solicits or that elicits Praise. And it's striking here that the praise that's awaiting God in Zion is literally silent praise, silent praise. That is striking because we don't usually think of praise as being silent, but it is the word in the Hebrew. It's the same word, really, in Psalm 62, verse 1. Truly my soul silently waits for God, or my soul is silent before God. So in our text, praise is silent to you, O God. What's going on here? Silent praise? I don't hear silence in the praise of the birds, do you? In fact, if The birds aren't singing one morning, I'm wondering if they're there. But Psalms, you'd expect to be filled with noisy things and noisy praise, like with the and the harp, and and, and the guitar, and, and the trumpet, and let's sound the praise of God. And we're going to talk about that later in our last song. But this praise that's commended here to God is silent. Is the psalmist here embarrassed? Is he really saying, praise is silent, O God, in Zion? It's too bad. It's a bad time. We're rather ashamed of you. And the members, they don't rise up and confess their faith. They're not going to publicly profess that. That's embarrassing. Is that what the psalmist is saying? Oh, no, not that kind of silence. There's many different thoughts on this. Among the commentators, maybe you'll have some, and maybe they'll be different than the ones that I would advance to you. But here's what I would say first of all, there's silent praise in Zion because there's an awe there, an awe of God. There's such an awe that when we are praising God, we dare not take too much or pay too much attention to our praising God and show too much attention in just how we ought to praise God. much interest in that, more than or rather than God himself. Our praise is silent, O God, because we don't want to miss an opportunity to think about you and get clouded over in our praise and praise bands and everything we can to get the neighborhood in. And what a praising church that is, if they're going to forget and we're going to forget God, whom we praise. You see, we realize, don't we, when we meditate upon God, he's greater than our praise. We can say a few things, but what is that compared to God? How imperfect our praise is. So that, I would say, is the principal thing here. It's simply there's reverence. But then... It could be that the psalmist has just prayed, O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. And he's waiting now for an answer, but waiting as a servant and waiting expectantly and humbly for when God will answer his prayer. He knows he will, and he knows because he's getting ready to praise. And as soon as God answers prayers and comes into the room and knocks on your door and, and opens your heart to what he's doing in your life, You're going to be there with praise. You're not going to be there questioning. You're going to be there with praise. You're going to cease the complaining, cease the doubting. You're going to be there and say, aha, I knew it. Praise God. All glory to you. The God who's my Father, who hears my prayers, my prayers of all things, for Jesus' sake. So that could be very well why this praise is waiting. Is silent. It's 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 going to be there. It really is there in principle, because he's confident in the God who's the confidence of all the ends of the earth. Could be as well that there has been a lot of busyness and a lot of noise in the preparation of the worship of God and, and the getting of the animals together and the the vows recorded by the priests and so on. And and so. As soon as God or as soon as this, wor- this preparation for worship is over and the worship begins, maybe that's a reference here to the praise that is silent before God in anticipation of the actual worship of the people which has been in the preparation for a season. It's Silent is this praise. Another way is to say we, we just can't express it. Our words are something, but we know the greatness of God is unspeakable, is as well the gift of God in Jesus Christ. We're silent in all times, and we're silent because God is our God, and and we don't want to, with our praise even, take the place of God. This praise as well is is universal. It's this silent praise. It's this universal praise, this public praise praise of God, but it's in everything, it's a a submissive expectation of the deliverance of God that will come. You will provide atonement, you will hear prayer, and to you the vows will be made. Before I get into that last part, I want to ask ourselves the question, is our life with God a silent sort of life, a praising sort of life, which is exuberant, don't get me wrong, enthusiastic, but it's more than that. There's something divine and the God who's saying to us, bow before me, be reverent before me. This is the distinction of true Christians from non or just superficial, or maybe even young ones. The true Christians know more and more how great their sins and miseries are, how great the great deliverance is in Jesus, and the great God who gets it done. And we bow. And the church is the one long before the pop star who wrote the true sound of silence. It's a sound with which God is pleased. The sound of your silence. Even in the midst of all your enthusiasm and exuberance, this waiting, this submission, this being willing to hear and to hear God. And then it results in a vow that will be performed. Isn't that amazing? A vow... Unto you the vow shall be performed, or paid. There's a reference here in this verse 1 to a promise that someone might have made. uh, To God, I'm going to give you my bullock today. and Maybe to a personal problem, maybe there's a, a votive offering that's given here, and people pledge to offer that and, and pray God's blessing upon them, maybe in a drought, if they're a farmer and there's a drought. There's all kinds of vows that could be anticip- or thought of here with regard to Israel, but just think of it with regard to us. And there's no limitation here, beloved. If praise is truly silent and awaiting before God, it's real in Zion, then to God, the vow, every vow will be performed, which would be the vow of baptism, the parents give to their children or with regard to their children to raise them up in the fear of God, it would be the vow of marriage. I'm going to marry in the Lord. I'm going to be faithful unto death. I'm going to love you, honey. You're going to, I'm going to love you, honey. You're mine. You're the only one. That's a vow. Could be a confession of faith, of course, in the church of Christ, a vow. That's a vow. That's what the young lady's taking here is a vow. I am going to be what I say I am. And I trust that God is the God whom I now vow that he is. That's the beauty and the praise of God, you know, when people do that. But then there's a marriage of, oh, that people might have, or the marriage, the hospital, the, the vow that a person might make in the hospital. Lord, if you heal me, I'll serve you. But if you don't, that's okay. Let me just submit to you. Or maybe the vow in a foxhole. As they say, there's, there's no atheists in foxholes. A vow that a soldier might make who's in danger of dying is, I'm going to serve you, God. Hopefully he keeps the vow. Now, see, this is who we are. We are a vowing people. We take seriously life before God. See, that's the point. We praise God, and then we practically praise God in keeping our commitments to be a a person who's faithful at work, who has a good attitude, who receives people with bad attitudes gently and with a smile and with righteousness at the same time. We are those who are, as Jesus says, we must be, the amen people. He even says that you shouldn't really vow and and be that people that depends on your vows formally. Just be a people that is what it says it is, who shows off the God who is in every single area of life, mothers, You take a vow every day. You promise to God, I'm going to serve you. I'm offering you these four children under four and all the diapers I have to change and everything today. I'm offering that to you, oh God, so I can serve you cheerfully. And I'm going to work for you no matter how irresponsible the other people are. My boss is God. And I'm going to do this cheerfully, whatever it is and I'm going to serve you. This is who we are. The vow, the psalmist is confident, will be performed. Now, this is very humbling here. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. Sometimes I fear it's still waiting and is not as it should be in the house of God sometimes i fear in my own life that praise isn't waiting for god or silent before god i'm getting on with life without praise how foolish god is everything to us and we're waiting for the for the ship to come in something else besides the gospel, something else besides the word of God. We're fraternizing with the enemy and seeking to be entertained because there's just not enough joy in Christianity in a little church with what they say is a big gospel. And therefore, the vows never get performed. The promises uh, are just empty words. How often that happens. And I'm not just talking about cheating on your wife. I'm talking about the little things of life too. How, how there is a high on a day like today, but how there's a low in a tomorrow like tomorrow might be. And you go up and down and up and down like a yo-yo, and the devil's playing with you. And your flesh is not satisfied with the goodness of God's house, and you want something more than the manna, tie all the sermons together, more than Jesus. And you sin, and then somebody else you know sin, and you say, well, what's the use? I'm so far from being perfect, and like a person who's giving perfect praise that Maybe I'm not even a Christian, and I've messed up my marriages, I've messed up others people's lives, and all these messages you can point to. But beloved, I would point you to the first vower and the first one who performs silent praise to God, and that's Jesus, Psalm 40. Find it here. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. This is Jesus speaking. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you've opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come. That's his vow. In the scroll or the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Jesus said that. You see, everything is Christ, and our vows are nothing without him. But he has vowed to faithfully perform the work of salvation, to provide the atonement, to provide the Holy Spirit, to provide the grace to you now to perform your vows and to begin to be the praisers of God in Zion. That's what he's done, Rachel, for you. That's the vow he's taken when he came. It was for you, for Nathan, for the DeWintz, and for for the wards, and for all of God's people, wherever they are. I vow to be your Messiah. I vow to be your comforter in life and in death. I vow to shed blood that will be sufficient to cover every sin. I vow to be there with you in this nasty world, and to pick you up again and to carry you, even if he has to carry you on his shoulders all the way home to the real house of God, the eternal house of God, the good house of heaven. Can't wait to be there, can you? Let's not wait to praise. May praise await in Zion. Silent, reverent, but also loud and joyful praise here and in every place where God's name is called upon. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us. And bless us, Lord, that the echoes of your word that we've now heard may not be lost upon us, that the manna that we've had placed at our feet and before our ears may be chewed and digested and assimilated into our lives. God bless this congregation, the new members of the church family of Sovereign Grace, and all who hear the word tonight. Bless us and apply truth to our lives. May it be a praising life, ours, and a life of vows that are performed and a life that's turning away from self and ungodliness to Jesus and righteousness. Hear our prayers, Lord, And may peace be with us and great joy. Amen.